on this episode, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Tom Ungi. I remember driving into London in a Rover 214 and having nowhere to stay. And that was the start of the journey. I mean, I was petrified. I'd be in, a, I'd be in the back of a car with the chairman of the stock exchange calling me boy and... Uh, you know, very old school in its nature, and I was shit scared, in all, in all honesty, and like trying to not screw up. I'd actually just met the president of the, of the US. As in the president of the US, or? Yeah. Oh, right. I yeah. didn't know if there was like the president of the US division of your company. No, no, no. Right. no okay. The president in the wow. White House. And, okay. you know, you're a young, you're a young whippersnapper. <laughs> wow. And so all of a sudden, I'd had this awakening, is, you know, as you'd call it, maybe, which is that I, I could see life in a different way. Your people have a problem and that problem is around a question that they may not know how to ask themselves my job is to help them identify the question and stand alongside them and support them while they answer the question that's it that's what it's about welcome to another episode of big risk energy on this podcast we talk to an amazing range of people we talk to these people about risk risk they've taken in their lives risks they've taken in their careers when they paid off and when they didn't Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Tom, we spoke for the first time about six weeks ago, and we had a really interesting business conversation, and then we reconnected um, just last week, and you blew my mind in terms of, you know, I, I had been introduced to you and heard about the first part of your career, uh, incredibly successful background in hedge funds, which I think a lot of people will be interested to learn a bit more about, but I had no idea about the second part of your journey. If it's fair for me, it probably being very oversimplistic calling it the second part of your journey, but what you're doing now and was totally blown away. And I think it's, uh, you know, something which I speak to so many people about who have come from the city, they've come from something which is a totally um, you know, commercial exercise in many ways, and then something happens, whatever it might be, and 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 they want to find something different. So, thank you so much for coming on and and telling us a bit about the story. I really appreciate that. That's absolutely fine. And actually, I didn't tell you this before. We haven't spoken about this. So it was a third part of the journey. Um, I had a small tech company I'd been building for the last year, year and a half, with two founders, two partners, and um, we met to discuss uh, Connected, mm-hmm. your company. And I came off that conversation and I messaged my two partners and said, um, our, vet, our, our company has just been killed because Connected does what we wanted to do in a whole, in a, at a whole different level. The complexity and the way you thought about the problem and also the way you're going to operate the business is at a level beyond where even our fantasy was going to lead into. And so I killed that business. No way. Yeah. I, so thank you for killing my business. <laughs> well, they do say fail fast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, no it's all good. And, and I, was, I, was, I was more happy, really, that you'd solved the problem that we were trying to solve. Wow, I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, we, so, we, didn't, we didn't discuss that. Every time we speak, you blow my mind yeah, with something yeah. new. Something just, for you. We're going to have to do weekly conversations yeah, yeah. now. I'm not going to have the back end of a head by the end of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's an amazing part of the story as well. But thank you so much for coming on. And obviously, you know, I'm so interested in what you're doing right now, but it would be insane not to talk about the first part of your journey and just how far you went. I mean, coming from Liverpool to London, tell us about that. That's a massive risk in and of itself, moving down here. Where were you at at that point? Uh, well, I li- you know, I lived in uh, Liverpool, I lived in Lancashire, I lived in Manchester, I lived in Cheshire, and so the northwest is where I, I see myself as like a. That's in my in my in my soul. That's who I am. And um, coming down to London was petrifying. In, in all honesty, I didn't know anybody. Um, I'll 
I remember, basically, I remember driving into into London in a Rover 214 and having nowhere to stay, you know, and that was the start of the journey and saying, right, you'll figure it out. And so risk, I don't know if there's that much risk there when you're you're 21, to be honest Mm. with you, sort of naive with everything anyway. And, you know, you you have to have a little bit of belief in yourself that you'll figure it out. And my my thought process is if there's 8, 10 million people in the city – you know, there's a job there for you. You know, you'll go, you'll go and figure it out. But being in the city was what I always wanted. And growing up, there was no kids around our way that was that were coming down to the city of London. It wasn't a path. I'm not saying that they couldn't have done it or they didn't have the ability or anything else to do that. It was just like a mysterious place that people didn't go to. And so, the desire to want to go and do that, I'll never forget. And it was just something that that's what I was going to go and do. That's really interesting. And what was it in you that said, I want to be in the city? There was, I remember, I'd only ever been to London once before in my life, before mm-hmm. I actually drove into it with that 214. And it was, um, and I came when I was about eight or nine years old with the Cubs and we went to the Stock Exchange. Wow, okay. And uh, as part, you know, we went to the Buckingham Palace and different places as, uh, like, you know, on, on, come down on the bus. And we went to the Stock Exchange and I went back. I mean, mum bought me after that a, a, a penguin book of the Stock Exchange. Okay. Which I've still got. And it was something to do with that. It was like the 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 noise, the 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 desire, the 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 commercial component of it, whatever it was, that was really, really attractive to me. And then if I think about beyond that point, I always liked the fact of the things I really liked as a kid were if I think back, were winning. I liked to make money. I remember my very, very, very first job of trying to make money was cutting weeds, uh, cutting down nettles. Right, okay. I was about eight, nine years old. Mm -hmm. I was washing cars by the time I was 10, you know, around our our way and that sort of stuff. And so the the function of doing something and making money was always in my mindset. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like a place which was the most commercial component in the world. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but that was what excited to me. Probably at that time was, right? Yeah. Very interesting. And did you go straight into the hedge fund environment, or was that? No. So the first opportunity I, re- I, I, the first real opportunity I got in the city was with the Stock Exchange, uh, that place that I'd walked into all those years before. Amazing. And, um, I, and I had this incredible job, and basically, um, I would float around the world. I'd be two weeks abroad, two weeks in the UK at 21, 22. Jealous already. Yeah, and um, (laughs) flying around the world on business class Mm -hmm. and trying to get companies to IPO in London. And that was the gig, yeah, and and big companies. And when I said I was doing this at 21, 22, let's not not over-exaggerate it. I was was making uh, presentations for someone who would deliver them. Right, okay. And I was carrying the bags. Fine, fine, fine. But along that journey, I was going, you know, I was going to, the place I was going was spend a lot of time in South Korea, a lot of time in Hong Kong, Japan, Australia, and then um, then into the US. And so I was getting to spend time with the chairman of the stock exchange, the CEO of the stock exchange, who taught me a huge amount of, a huge number of things. And you were going to the ambassador's house. Mm. I met presidents. So these things were going wow. on at 22, 23. Wow. It was just this incredible, fun experience. It was going really, really well. And so, yeah, it was great. And how much do you think having that exposure to high risk, high adrenaline, um, you know, really, really 
mind-blowing experiences at the time how much does that play into then the need to keep on chasing that type of high because that's something that I, i've you know experienced previously as well as like when you're in these high-risk situations all the time everything else gets a bit muted right yeah the answer to the question is that um uh, i'll partly answer that question which is around experience and what i was learning from those experiences first and foremost i mean i was petrified I'd be, in a, I'd be in the back of a car with the chairman of the stock exchange calling me boy and, uh, you know, very old school in its nature. And I was shit scared, in all, in all honesty, and like trying to not screw up whatever what I, what I was doing. But at the same time, like the people like this person were very human to me. And mm. so I'll give you examples. I'd walk into a room and there'd only be us in the room. We'd be waiting for other people to come in. And, and I remember this guy saying to me, which chair is the most senior person in the room sit on? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. And he'd be like, he'd point to it and he'd go, so that is, I will wait till their most senior person sits on that chair and then I will sit opposite. Or we'd go into a room and he'd say, um, okay, uh, come with me. And so we'd walk around the room and he'd, and he'd look at every single photograph or picture in the room and describe what was on it. Now, I walked into this room that we're in today and I looked and touched the walls and, and had this feel. And the reason being that he would say to me, once, you've, once you've, you know what everything is in this room, everything's going on, you won't be distracted in the conversation and you will give pure focus to the individual. So these are little tidbits that I was learning on that journey. And what it was, what it was teaching me as well was all these people are just human. Mm. So nobody is better than me and I'm not better than anybody else. And so when you sort of put that together, it keeps you this comfort around risk and actually striving and being able to move forward because you, you start to remove barriers. Mm, very cool. And I think that that's one of the things that we love about uh, this podcast is totally to your point, you've got to see it to believe it, right? These people are human and it sometimes can feel like you're so far away from being in the situations that they are. But when you hear these stories and you experience it in that way, it's like, okay, there is a path. Just in the way that you were saying, um, moving from Liverpool to London, going to the city, there wasn't a path there before you. But now people hearing this, people probably seeing that from your friend group, people who you grew up with, they saw, right, there is a way to, to get here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I've helped plenty of kids now since then come, come into the city, and I'll continue to do that. And lots of, lots of kids call me up and, or will message me on LinkedIn, and I'll say, oh, just, let's just give me, here's my number, give me a call, and we'll have a conversation. And, um, and there's something else about the, the, the risk to go back on in a second. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that, once you start to remove the, – the way I think about it is that I struggle to find the things that we couldn't – you and I couldn't do. Mm. You know, and going into the city is a perfect example, right? So going into the city, city is filled with lexicon of these complex conversations and complex terms that we that are utilised for actually quite simple things. And the function of the city and the function of the financial system actually is quite basic in its needs. It's, it's about taking money from – or rather – Utilizing money from one place to give it to people who need money to be able to do something with it to create something that flows the money back. Mm -hmm. The banking system, right? And so once you can sort of break down that complexity, and I needed to do that because, you know, I find some of these terms hard to hard to understand if yeah. it's just on, it's on the face of it. You can start to help other people to see it's not that difficult. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And actually... When I speak to um, young, ki young, ki young kids, young you know, kids, seventeen, eighteen-year-old people, often who who are desired to be in the city, they'll say to me, "I'm not quite sure which job it is that I need to go after, what I want to be." I said, don't, "Don't think about it in that context. 
think about it in the context of what is it you really love doing. So, for example, I if it was I really like problem solving. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, think about the problem solving component and try and identify the roles that have uh, the very nature around problem solving. If somebody says, you know, I mean, I you know, I ask them maybe say, okay, where do you what sports you do? And say, okay, I'm playing a football team and I play at the defense and I play and I like that position because when my teammates mess up a little bit, I'm there to protect them. Okay, crisis management. Mm. Okay, think about the context of how you can utilize that skill that you really and apply it to it. So it's like your real right. life skill is what it is, uh, as opposed to. Yeah, I'm really good at um, you know statistical statistics. I, I, I'm I born that? for remittance. That's yeah. just me all over. Like yeah. I love remittance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that makes total sense. Yeah. So that's how I I think about it. But on the risk component, I'll tell you the story. Uh, you know, going back to that conversation on the stock exchange. So we're in this wonderful job. I'm having this incredible exposure. I'd actually just met the president of the, of the US. Uh, as in the president of the US or... Yeah. Oh, right. I yeah. didn't know if there was like the president of the US division of your company. No, no, no. Right. no okay. The president in the wow. White House. And, okay. you know, you're a young, you're a young whippersnapper. <laughs> wow. It, it, and, um, okay, once again, let's not get out of context. Other people were meeting the president. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I got the opportunity for a photograph and took the opportunity. <laughs> right, course. so let's... Um, uh, <laughs> let's <laughs> dispel let's, any myths here. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. not get it out of context <laughs> whatsoever, right? Um, I just happen to be in the right place so, at the okay, right so, time. So you've called a meeting with the president. He needed to hear <laughs> what I had to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, But just after that, I decided I was in this wonderful place. I was in the stock exchange. I was in the centre of the city of London. But I wasn't doing what I what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a trader. And I, I could see it out the window. I could literally, I'd be in the evenings. I remember the ninth floor of that building, Old Broad Street, being able to see across the NetWest building mm. and see traders in there. And they were doing what I wanted to do. And I was so close, I could touch it. But I wasn't there. Mm. And that hurt. It honestly hurt. So I left and I tried to find, well, I didn't leave actually. I tried to find another job. Mm-hmm. Somebody would give me the job. And so I went to, uh, I wrote to um, various large US investment banks. And I was very familiar with no's by this time of trying to get opportunities because the stock exchange was like the hundredth opportunity. They didn't just like walk in and get it. Yeah. You yeah. know, there lots of no's. And um, I didn't get, nobody wanted to, to meet with me because I didn't have the educational background or, or, or um, experience that they needed. And I found an, an, a, a small company, trading company, that said, okay, we'll give you a job for nine for nine months and see if you can make it, and we'll pay you zero. Wow. Now, by this time... Brutal. Yeah, by this time, um, you know, I was earning nice money, like, not crazy money, but I was earning, for a 22-year-old, nice money at the stock yeah. exchange, 23-year-old, nice money at the stock exchange. I'd bought my first flat. Yeah. Had a mortgage. And they had what I wanted. And so I said, done. Okay, I'm in. Wow. And so I left this like this all expenses, travel paid job to go in the back room of a trading firm and learn how to trade and do it for zero money. Huge risk. You know? It was a risk. Huge um, risk. Because like, well, it was a risk because, you know, I had a path of a career that could have been, could have been nice. And um, I had a risk because I had a, a mortgage. Yeah. But the worst risk, in all honesty, was sitting on that ninth floor, looking out on a Friday night at 6, 7 p.m. and seeing people out, out there doing what I wanted to do and mm. feeling the pain that was like that hole not being filled. That, that was the real risk. That would haunt you, right? You'd be sitting here 30 years later saying, what if? It hurts. Yeah, yeah. it's it's funny. I um, 
I used to ha- I used to feel like that all the time that what if what if and that's why you got to go for it. But now I think, am I just uh, grass is always greener at some point in my mind? And I think um, part of me getting a bit more mature is thinking actually you can't take every single opportunity because of the opportunity cost, right? And you've actually got to start weighing up more. But when you're young and you know you've got that passion and you've got that um, clarity around. I, I can see it. I can see it. I, w- I want to be able to get there. So, I mean, it makes total sense. I think of it as um, risk. So, risk is the is an action that we could take. I, I think of it. An action that could take, the outcome could be harmful to me or great for me. Mm-hmm. And it's this. It's almost, it's not binary, but there's a different scale to it. Yeah. And so... When I think about anything, and and I still think about things that I'm going to do, that I'm doing right now that I'm working towards, or that I'm gonna I might do in the future, it starts off with a fantasy. Mm. Like there's a little dreamy fantasy of like you know, what would it be like to do that thing? Mm, yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. And um, and then it's okay. Do do I do I actually want it? You know, so start, this is the part of the decision process. Mm. And once you've started to make that decision process, I actually, okay, now I actually want it. And then it's a case, a question of, do I actually like the idea, just the outcome, or do I actually like the work to get it? Mm. And if it's both, then it's like, okay, now I want it. And then I make the decision, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And once I've made that decision, there's no negotiation. So is that how you felt when you got this offer for nine months unpaid, exactly the way you just laid it out there? This is it. This is it. Yeah. Like, um, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Mm. And, um, you know, that decision, if we go back to that decision, that risk, which, you know, didn't feel like a crazy risk at the, risk at the moment. However, I did spend, um, I spent the next six months eating. I had the same meal uh, for um, every night for six months, which was baked potato and tuna. Wow. Uh, tin tuna, yeah. And um, I, and that's what I did. And I, so I took that risk. From that came... I ended up not staying after that nine months with that firm. I actually got a better offer of a different firm. And then from that firm, I did quite well. And I got a better offer from an even better firm. And then from that firm, I did really well and got an offer from another firm. And that's the place I ended up staying for 16 years. And we built a great business. So a great business was built and I was part, a small part of You're that journey. You're being very humble here, Tom. I was being part of that journey, you know. And it's like, um, and, it's, and that's, 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 that was, it. so if I would have not taken that initial risk, I wouldn't have got to those other places. Mm. Mm. That's really interesting. And what is it about you? Because, you know, you are, I love the humility, but obviously underplaying just how far you guys took that business and, and how amazing it became. What was it within that journey? Are you just, were you just made to be that, that guy at that time? Is it something that you picked up? I mean, what, what did that look like, that journey? Because I think for a lot of people hearing this story, again, you know, the risk you've taken of taking a step back in terms of salary and it's very easy to go down that comfortable route sort of map there'll be lots of people listening to this who are like i want to do this like i want to make that jump and be nervous about it and hearing these stories of taking the step step back to take a hundred steps forward is so important it it is it is important and it's uh, depends on people's propensity for risk if Mm. if you're comfortable with going backwards and Comfort. I don't mean. I don't mean financial. Yeah. Financial. You'll figure it out. It's about ego. 
If you can allow your ego to to right size your ego and to bring it down a level and to be able to be accept the narrative and with authenticity and be honest about the narrative, then you've got the ability to to go and to step back as we would seem it to to do to go forward. And then also there's a there's a component of it which the second thing is what I'd say about is you've got to know okay this is just this is just for me and it's not for everybody. <laughs> I know I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, already, I know that. And I know we all do it, but I'm awake to that fact, which means that this is the opportunity set that's right here, right now. And so with that, I've got a, rel- a, a relatively level of, you know, a relatively decent level of comfort that let's just take these opportunities. Nothing really matters. Mm. It doesn't really matter. But the, the thing I'd say to anybody who's looking at my career or anybody else's is it looks shiny at the outcome. <laughs> But the, the, the beginning of it isn't like that, mm. you know. If I go back to any one of my roles in, in in the finance industry, when I started that role, A, I probably wasn't qualified to do it. B, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and C, the organization wasn't ready for that either. Mm. You know, so in the organizations I worked in, for me personally, I found that I was in the platform that I was given was a platform that the organization was in a growing space and was ready to evolve. And for me, I was in a growing space and ready to evolve with it. If those organizations would have been the finished product, I think I would have probably struggled mm. in all honesty. And I don't like working in organizations that are the finished product. Yes. And that's not because um, they're bad organizations. It's that the people who need to take that to the next level are different people to me. Yes. I like the bit where it's let's figure let's figure it out every day and try and try the challenges. That's the bit that I find really enjoyable and fun. It's really interesting and it's clear then, you know, having companies around you which foster that entrepreneurial spirit was so key to you being able to do that because otherwise you could have ended up in a situation where you've got a massive corporate and them not recognizing your drive, ability to make things happen whatever it might be may have led to unrealized potential. It would have done, um, and it would have also been frustrating for me Mm. because um, I don't like to conform. Mm. I really don't like to conform. I I, I don't like status quo. I like to look at the world and see how it could be done, something can be done differently. And the best thing that anybody can say to me is is you can't do it. (laughs) I love that because I'll just explore every opportunity and idea about, okay, how how can this be done? Mm. And that's how I really like to to challenge the world. Mm. And so certain structures within financial services are, they they thrive on the system and the structure of that system. And that works really, really well. And being able to challenge that status quo mm. within those systems is really, really challenging. And very few people manage to, manage to do it. And so that's, those sort of structures would be more difficult for me. I was part of organizations that were credibly entrepreneurial, yeah. which is one. So that fit me really well. Two, we're really comfortable with, okay, I'm saying really comfortable uh, with failure, but more a case of could right-size failure. Mm -hmm. You know, there Mm -hmm. was, okay, we're going to make, we're going to get lots of things wrong on a daily basis, and and how do we learn from them? I'll come back to that in a second. Um, So being able to right-size failure, but they also had the desire to be the number one in whatever they did. Amazing. Every part of that business. And for me, that's why I get really excited as well. It's like, okay, how do we really, how do we, how can we be, not 
it's not a function of making more money than, than someone else or anything like that. It's a function of how can we win? Yeah, absolutely. Because winning's really, really good. Or, or trying to win. The like joy that. is in trying to, is maximizing potential, right? Yeah, it's trying to get there. That's so much fun. Yeah, 100%. Um, super, super interesting. And you've obviously gone to the pretty much the pinnacle of where you could go within trading at hedge funds. And now you're doing something totally different. So talk to us about that transition because it's another um, really interesting step in the journey. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that in um, I'll, I'll, different dimensions, okay? And, 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 and flowing through this is addiction, flowing through it is burnout, and there's, and there's different parts of and and a change in myself. And so the backstory really is it begins with, let me flow in alcohol mm-hmm. for, for, for a start. I, I, growing up, alcohol was part of our life. It was what men do. It's what, uh, when you work hard, you drink hard. Mm-hmm. And this is, and this is the mentality that, um, that I was experienced, that I was, that I, that I, the environment that I was part of and experienced. Right? And so, lo and behold, go through university and, and I drink, I, I continue to drink heavily. Mm-hmm. And I'm with a crowd that drinks heavily. And then, next thing you know, you go to the city of London and um, you drink heavily and all expenses paid and you drink really, really well. And then um, something happens that changes in life. Now, if I pause there and I go right back to being a child, when I was uh, four to four years old to eight years old, we lived in South Africa okay. uh, during apartheid. And I went to school there and um, my parents were very young. Mm-hmm. And I went to school in a South African school and they didn't like English kids, and they beat the living shit out of me. Wow. Daily, you know? And, you know, f- to extreme things happened to me as a small child, and the way I learned to deal with that was to disassociate with what was actually happening, mm-hmm. okay? The brutality. And I carried that through my life. And so even now fast forward to drinking heavily in the city, but things are going well because the more I drink, the more like the more business you win and all yeah. the rest of it. And then I go to the the fund and different type of coping mechanisms for stress, which became alcohol. What happened was I had my our first daughter Ruby, who's uh, fourteen now and was at Harry Styles last night. Nice. <laughs> and were you dragged along to that one? I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I Maybe got, next time. I think I am going later in the year. But, um, there you go. Uh, God bless you, Harry. Thanks for that. And then. Um, <laughs> So then what happened after after Ruby was, was born, my, my wife said to me, okay, you, you need to come home and be a dad. Mm. And Roy, I couldn't do it. I needed to go and drink. And so what would happen was I'd make up these excuses. It would always be such and such as in from New York, really important client meeting, whatever it is, bullshit. And then so that I could... I could I could drink and I didn't really know what was going on at the time, mm. but I knew something was wrong. And a year or so later, our second daughter Chloe uh, was born, and she died on the same day. And at that point, it was right back to that. I remember the exact place I was standing, uh, the exact feeling, and it was the. That is same as that little boy in South Africa, the dissociation with the experiences and feelings that I had. Mm. I had to be out here looking in, and that's what was going on for me. And the consequence was 
yes, I was incredibly, I was a mess and I drank more heavily. And I wasn't as supportive as I would like to have been to my wife and family and, and everything else and or my daughter. And we muddled through it and then we got pregnant again for the third time. And uh, Gracie was born and Gracie was, uh, by this time we'd moved out to the countryside. I mean, mm -hmm. She was born at John Ratcliffe in Oxford and Gracie was... Um, was born and she was very very poorly when she was born and for 19 days I sat next to her bedside and read her bedside stories and after that she died on that on the 19th day and uh, anything that was still I was hanging on to from a emotional perspective was broken at that point mm. and, and my drinking just went into into overdrive and in a whole new level and it took me to the, the depths of insanity and I needed to go into uh, into recovery, mm. which is what I did. In fact, actually, a year later from that, we were pregnant again. And Poppy, who's nine today, uh, not nine at the moment, mm -hmm. ten soon, very cheeky, she was born. And that's our, our unit, our family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to, to, to flow back into that change to where we are today... Addiction is is big part of that a part of that journey because the organisation mm -hmm. I was working for were very very kind to me, and sat me down and said, "Look, sunshine, you've got a lot of goodwill in this organisation because you've been good, and you're you know, and we believe in you, but you're really screwing up here." Mm. And they they were kind and they got me a coach. Um, we never talked about addiction and that sort of stuff yeah. in that context. We just they knew that then it was almost like an unsaid. And, uh, and they were beautiful to me, really caring, really lovely and nourishing. And I'll always, I'll never forget that. And they got me a coach. And in six months of working with this coach, my perspective on life had completely changed. Wow. And coping mechanisms had, had flowed in. And I'd gone into AA. I'd mm -hmm. gone into recovery. I'd gone to a 12-step program. I'd also started to get a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I was getting all this help. And for the first time... I understood what I was experiencing emotionally. I had the, the, the words, the vocabulary to articulate what I was mm. experiencing. And I had the connection points to articulate it to people to get the support I required to make me live. That was incredible to me. And so all of a sudden I'd had this awakening, mm. as, you know, as you'd call it maybe, which is that I, I could see life in a different way. And I remember from that point on, for the next number of years, my life became about connection. So the trading component of the industry became less of, I mean, I always, I'll always love financial markets and systems, but sure. became less of really what the passion was. And what I really began to love was the human beings mm. and how to lead, um, how to support people through challenges. Somebody coming to me and saying, I've got a problem with something and can you help me with it? life or markets or whatever it might be was was a gift to me because mm. it meant that I was open for them to come to. And so that's where my, my career had sorted to go and my jobs got bigger and bigger and I had more people and all this sort of stuff. And then I knew that I wanted to do something else. So I retrained mm -hmm. and I did a master's in, in coaching. And did you um, stop working for that? Was that something you did alongside work? No, 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 no. I did it on alongside work. My journey in was an hour and my journey home was an hour. Um, so that gave me an hour. That gave me ten hours a week of reading and work. It's the efficiency I'd expect from yeah. you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so it gave, it gave me that. And then on, a, well, and then my wife was really, really, really supportive. And what I'd do sometimes on a mm. Sunday, 
I'd go to a library because the house wasn't going to work there. Sure. I'd go to the library at opening and I'd sit at a desk and I'd do the work until the library closed. Okay. And in fact, at that point, then my wife would often take the kids to the cinema and the cinema, with the seat I would sit in, I could see them going into the cinema. No so it's a bit like being back at the soccer yeah. stage. I could see them over there thinking, I want to be over there. <laughs> and um, But it's I knew it was a short-term yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, so I, re- I retrained as this. And then that was my plan. Oh, sorry. Well, I, it wasn't really my plan to become a coach. Mm. But along the, towards the end of the course, I thought, okay, this is this yes. is not a calling. Let's not be too grandiose about it. But human connection is what I really thrive and enjoy. Yes. And this and this is what I'm going to enjoy the most. Mm. This is the direction I need to go. And then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Pandemic paused it slightly because I'd started the business but couldn't exit what I was doing. Right, right. Because I had a lot of people who were who needed support through that period, as we all did. Yes, it was the wrong time. Yeah, but I'd started that that path of that movement out, and you know, today we we have this business that we're operating. Wow. I mean, Tom, thank you so much for for sharing the story. You know, it's it's an incredible story, and and you know, I think the fact that you're so open about it because there are so many people who are walking around with unseen pain you know there are so most people are walking around with childhood traumas lost you know all these things but it's funny because you know i'm i just turned 31 and now i start experiencing loss and things with family and everything else and you know it's funny because people don't talk about it as much when you're young and it's just this sort of like hidden thing that we're all walking around with that exists for everyone and no one teaches you how to deal with these things right there's no path to say well this is going to really hurt and this is how you deal with it and we're all just sort of muddling around i think especially as men as well where we do tend to uh, or at least in my experience and a lot of people that i know disassociate remove ourselves to avoid feeling emotion and all these things and there are such few tools and i think as well bringing that into the commercial world where even more so that's frowned upon i think uh, it's such an amazing thing to do so um you know, thank you so much for for telling us about it, and thank you so much for you know the hard work you're doing on that side. And how have you seen people start receiving this versus how they were before? Because I think the pandemic has been a, a massive um, accelerator of people focusing more on mental health and support, especially within the commercial environment. It definitely has, and. Um I think we're tiny steps of the way in, mm. in all honesty. And the um, I haven't thought about this question before, but this is my initial reaction to it or my right off the bat reaction to it is that there's a top-down approach of organisations and industries saying um, it's good to talk, mention talk, etc. And then there's the practical components of it, which is it doesn't filter. Not that the message doesn't filter down. It's like, how much do we really mean it? Mm. How much is like... Know, glossing over or or, or putting put this painting up of this is the way we're going to operate, but they're not operating the same way. Yes. And, um, and I think it's a bottom-up approach. And on a personal level, I'm, I'm open about my trauma, my, my own personal loss, not because, um, not because I need something from somebody else, because I, I don't. It's because you can help just one individual not to feel the way that I've felt. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, someone called Igwe said, um, change, you know, change the world one conversation at a time. Okay. Change the world one conversation yeah. at a time. And I like that concept. Mm. You know, it's like, um, just have that one conversation at a time and see how that, and see where that leads and see where it opens to. Now, 
if I look at it from a business co- conversation, I go back to my, my former career as opposed to my current one. In my former career, then the people that were that were my let's say the you know, my team that were most closely to me, I showed them vulnerability. Mm. I showed them what true empathy looks like. I showed them uh, what it means to care. I showed them about what's more important than making money. Mm-hmm. And I see today the way that they operate with the people around them. Mm. That matters to me. And if I look back of, um, on different parts of the career, I'm I'm not. Um, Okay, yeah, I'm proud that we did different things, but I don't. I wouldn't hang my hat on that. I was like, yeah, I'm really proud of that. Mm. But when I see that the way people operate and and, and nurturing with each other, yeah, I'm super proud of that. Or the way we bring people through. And if I look at the the world that um, we work in now, in the coaching space, mm-hmm. largely in financial services, truth be known, um, it isn't many sessions in before you get quite deep with an individual. Mm. And and you recognize how much they need, sorry, want yes. somebody to be able to have this one-on-one time with yes. and to have a conversation about something mm. that is deep inside them. And we um, we were asked to, and I'll, I'll pinch on this coaching component for a second. Mm. I was recently asked to um, pitch for a piece of business mm-hmm. and uh, I went into, went into the room and they asked, have you got your presentation to put on, on the deck? Uh, on the screen, and I yeah. said, no. And then they said, um, have you got your pitch decks? And I said, no. I said, that's not the way it's going to work. The way it's going to work is you're going to tell me your problems, and I'm going to tell you if I think I can help you solve them. Mm-hmm. And the person was a bit, like, nonplus, or a bit confused by it. And then I said, I said, okay, how can you explain your philosophy on coaching? And I said, well, look, if you want us to articulate right now to you the different forms of psychotherapy that we might use in skill sets or gestalt or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you're going to be bored and you can read it. I said, but it's much more simple than that. Your people have a problem, and that problem is around a question that they may not know how to ask themselves. Mm. My job is to help them identify the question then stand alongside them and support them while they answer the question. Mm. That's it. That's what it's about. And that's what I get to do for a living today, and that's a gift. Yeah, I mean, a gift to me, you know, that, that, yeah. uh, not like I've got a gift. I mean, like, it's it's a privilege to be able to be in that space to help people solve problems that, that they don't want to ask themselves. Yeah, And, the, you know, business and um, the commercial or business component and personal business, they intertwine. They absolutely do. And most leaders that I speak to, they know the answer to what they should do in a business scenario the things that stop them executing on that always come back to the personal self-doubt or I don't think I can do this or I I need to avoid having a difficult conversation. Very, very often leaders, because the thing is, you know, knowing a business externally, you can't tell them what the right business commercial answer is, for example, but it's about giving them the tools to actually execute on what they already know they need to. It's the things inside them. And as you said, how the business and personal intertwine that slow it down. Exactly, and the and and the tools can be uh, can be as simple as you know, dealing with an inadequacy that they feel that they have. Yeah. You know, it could be anything. It's something an imposter. It could be yeah. it, it's so many different things. It could be just to help people to work through so that they can be, you know, as near to their complete self to move forward with whatever they're going to do and execute mm-hmm. on it as they possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 
it's so interesting that because when we spoke uh, the other day and you were telling me that your master's was coaching with a psychotherapy component as well, mm -hmm. I found it fascinating. And that's the sort of thing which had I realized coaching had that component to it, I would have started it 10 years earlier, right? I would have done it as a, you know, as a 24 year old, because when I initially got introduced to a coach, I was like, well, this person doesn't know my business as well as me. So how are they going to tell me which hire to make or whatever it was? I had the completely wrong end of the stick around what coaching was. Now, for me, executive coaching led to me getting a therapist because it was like, okay, clearly there's other things going on here. So now I've been doing therapy weekly for about two years now, but I wouldn't have got there without coaching. And for me, understanding what coaching is has given you know me a totally new view on that space. Absolutely, and there's um like coaching and therapy are two different things, and they and they and they not just touch against each other. They um, it's like a Venn diagram. Yeah, exactly. Right? They're they're in there together, and um, but a good coach has to know when this person needs a level of even if this coach actually is also a trained psychotherapist. Mm. If the person's walked in the room for a coaching session and they believe that they need this psychotherapy, a good coach should be able to say, "Let's pause here." Mm what I think you need is this help with this. Let me help you find that person. Mm. And I've done that a number of times. Mm -hmm. And then the person goes on. In fact, if I don't think I'm the right coach for the person, I'll happily pause and say, I think you'll be better with this coach or that coach. And this is because it's about what the person needs. That's what mm. should be really important. When you talk about psychotherapy, coaching led me to psychotherapy. And I've recently picked up doing psychotherapy. I did it for two years. Mm -hmm. Did it for you? It sounds like some course, right? Yeah. And, like I had psychotherapy for two years, yeah. and then I decided to stop. Mm -hmm. And I stopped because I said, you know, what we've dealt with, I'm good with now. Mm. And the psychotherapist said to me, um, "There's there's more layers to go, you know." Mm -hmm. that? And I said, "I know that, but I don't want to do them." Mm. Right? It was good. And I recently picked up again, and um, we're working through another layer. Yeah. And the reason that we're doing it now and not previously is. I'm in a place not of needing to do that. Yes. Where I'm, I can do that. Yes. So psychotherapy doesn't have to just be like let's remedial on this problem we're at now. It's like okay, let's see where else we can go. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's there's, there's different parts to it. Yeah, totally. And that's it. It's a ever evolving journey, and I think we unlock more as we go. Mm. Which um, is, is a part that I love to. It's a it's a really really fulfilling part of the week, and I think. It's, so it's something which we implement in Connected. Anyone who wants therapy, the company will pay for it because I think genuinely Beautiful. it's, yeah, well, I think it's just one of those really important things. And, and, you know, I've invested in mental health technology companies as most of us have had. I've lost people through mental health issues. You know, th these are things that we all we all have around us. So it's something which we're really, really passionate about. And I think, uh, you know, it helps people unlock the potential in themselves more than anything else. You know, it's, it's what... I'm going to way oversimplify this, but I see it as almost the first layer is, you know, dealing with the trauma, dealing with the things holding us back. And then it's about building in other layers of helping propel us forward. And, and how can we grow? Growth Mindset, one of my favorite books, Carol Dweck, um, yeah. the American psychologist. Um, and I'm the biggest believer in that. You know, it's seeing it with my family, seeing it with friends that I know. It's not the people who are the most naturally skilled in XYZ who go the furthest. It's the people who, who grow. It's the people who keep on pushing. So um, something which uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you feel similarly about as well. I do. And, you know, traumas, trauma for me is a fascinating topic. I wrote my thesis in trauma. 
it's my superpower in a coaching perspective. And I seem to, I seem to identify well with clients that have got trauma, mm-hmm. have, have, tr- have some form of trauma. Trauma connects with trauma. And everybody has it. So the way I look at trauma is that even if, you know, even if you've been in a bubble, there's intergenerational trauma that has mm-hmm. just been passed down. Yeah. And um, if you went back... You go back to the go back to the war. Uh, post-war soldiers come back from the war. We were and, talking about this the other day, you know, yeah. exactly, and can be incredibly violent within the home, etc. There's trauma that exists. There's fear. There's being scared. There's and it passed down. There's you know we're talking about quite a lean period from from an economic perspective. Post then, mm-hmm. there's poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, you come through it, um, and 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 then we go on and on and on. And so this trauma is passed down and through. I can't remember the exact study, but I, I read a study recently where they were basically giving rats trauma, yeah. and they found that it passed down through three generations. The neurological impact of trauma passed down through three generations. Exactly, and so you, you're, you're. What I think about it is that trauma is um, something that is is it's like a chain that is around your leg, and it's got all these other chains, like one of those big chains that are um, the uh, anchors on the boats. And as soon as somebody you experience, you bump into some other trauma, it shakes the chain and bumps into all the traumas past. Mm. And so if you if somebody doesn't have the benefit of naturally working, sorry, working through the, the trauma and the grief or whatever it may be, it can be incredibly challenging for them. Mm. And so constantly working through that allows them to be free and be able to handle that chain. The chain can become a lot lighter, I suppose, is the analogy. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, I have been reading a lot about, uh, obviously, you know, a great way of rewiring the brain or one of the requirements of rewiring the brain is neuroplasticity and lots of interesting studies around the use of psychedelics within clinical settings to promote that neuroplasticity and help with some of this learning. I think it's a fascinating topic and I think it's obviously one for obvious reasons science has overlooked for a long time, but it's seeming to pick up a lot of speed right now. And I think you're going to see in the same way that we see so much going into longevity and these other areas, I think you're going to see a massive or a continuing wave of investment into exploring how we can promote that neuroplasticity to help people work through these things because everyone's got it, right? Um, so I think it's a, we were saying this the other day, it feels like neuroscience, it feels like this investment in mental health is now getting to a new stage and I'm really excited to see where the, the technology and the medicine and the treatments go to. And I think uh, as a coach, that must be a really exciting time to see it. It is. So the... um. Uh, the psychedelics component, first of all, um, I remember the. You know, I've done a, a number of angel investments now, and the first time I started talking about investments in with psychedelics was um, was a few years ago with a guy, in, a guy in New York, and there was a little bit of me that was chuckling inside of like, you know, what is he talking about, this guy? And then I started to read up and, and started to understand mm. it better, and then really it, it got me into this interesting space because, you know, as a as someone in, in recovery, clearly that's not going to be a space for me. However, I fully acknowledge that that's the um, uh, recognize the benefits, mm-hmm. and 
it also f- flicks back, if you look at the world, in the conformist component we were talking about earlier, there's a conformity to, uh, you know, go through education, conformity to do this, get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, drinking alcohol in the pub is okay, but smoking weed at, at home is bad. You know, whatever it may be, there's all these different, the, the, there's this, these conforming ways we think about it. And actually, we think about medicine in the same way. Mm. You know, if we look at the origins of, of Western medicine, it's born out of a couple of universities well-funded by certain institutions, right? Yeah. So there's, it's not that history knows that there's a direction that we go in. Mm. And I'm not knowledgeable enough to know whether Western, Eastern, or any other type of medicine is the right way to go. I'm just not. Sure. But I do recognize I like chaos and, and I like non-conformist views. Yeah. And so the ability to open up and try something different that creates an expansive experience that we can understand our minds better, I'm all for. Yeah. You know, because the knowledge that we've got about our mind and the brain is 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 obviously in its infancy. Yes. And as we continue to grow there, and, and then especially when it comes into healing, that's where it's going to get really exciting for me. Mm, absolutely. Because I think it's, um, you know, the the intersection between healing, consciousness, attention, perception, like that, for me, they all feel very, very interlinked right it's it's things that are happening at a subconscious or even unconscious level that are impacting us whether that's unattended to trauma whatever it is and I, I meditate a lot so we know that from a meditation perspective there is wider consciousness and there is attention i can pay attention to different things i can focus on them i can work through them and if those things are so deep-seated that the conscious cannot pay attention to them a way of uncovering them so that they can be attended to feels like a really great thing it it is a really great thing and there's you know you can look at the works of uh deepak chopra whoever you want and you can but you, you what you're describing is also an ability to ask that question of what's going on here mm. You know, I'm, I'm walking down the street and someone starts shouting at me when, when I leave here. All right, am I in danger? No. Uh, what, you know, is this person really think I'm, a, I'm an XYZ? <laughs> they don't even know me. So like, like, what's really going on here? And I have the same, same with, my, with my kids. My, my daughter's 14, so she's a, she's a teenager. Then she might say something to me. And my initial reaction, because it takes me back to childhood in some ways, to fight with her. Mm. And I have to pause and say, okay, what's actually going on here what is my conscious thought of this mm. which part of my subconscious is 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 reacting very poorly to this what is my next thing i'm going to do and mm-hmm. working through that now i'm lucky that i've been through you know truckloads of therapy truckloads of <laughs> meetings of uh, uh, masters and all this i've had the, the benefit of all of this learning mm. to be able to put me in a place where i can do that and i'm an infant and in being able to do it as well mm-hmm. So if you haven't had all that benefit, of course you're going to be reactive in your in your in the way yeah. the way you're going to react to certain situations. Yeah. So, you know the the onset of education, onset of medicine that allows us to be more aware. Mm-hmm. I find really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I we're going to get kicked out of here in three minutes. There was oh, good. There was five questions that I was going to ask you, but we can't do it. But we're going to do a part two of this because it was too good a conversation not to have a second part at some point so we'll do that and we have the five questions six questions that we run through with every guest so we'll do that on the next one but tom what would you like to plug i don't want to plug anything just a smile at people there you go and if people want to reach out to you and find you where can they do that Uh, they'll find me on linkedin or on our website but you know it's all good tom thank you so much for coming on the show thank you roy